This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we want to talk to you about evolution, kinds, and species. Evolution, kinds, and species. We are in our third installment here of a series that I'm calling Stop Shifting the Goalposts. And what this is really about is having more productive conversations um, on matters of disagreement between creationists, evolutionists, um, and even those who uh, subscribe to longer age views um, that are other Christians. And what we want to attempt to do is facilitate a way to uh, to to make these conversations. Uh, better, to make them more productive, to involve less uh, mudslinging, as it were. And so that is one of our uh, great um, missions uh, here uh, on the Creation Academy podcast is to do that. And one of the places where the issue begins and starts to take root is in the issue of definitions. And so that's what we have been talking about for the past couple weeks. Now, two weeks ago, all right, now today is, let's see, Lesson 42. So two weeks ago would have been Lesson 40. And on Lesson uh, 40, we looked at a debate that took place recently, uh, a creationist debate about should... Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 be taken literally. And the debate was between a creationist and uh, a gentleman who I believe claims to be a theistic evolutionist, or at least he's sympathetic uh, to, to that view. So one of the problems that became very, very clear in that conversation is that even though they were uh, one was defending the proposition and one um, was uh, against the proposition of whether or not Genesis 1 through 11 should be taken literally, uh, nevertheless, neither one seemed to have a clear definition of what the word literal means, especially how creationists actually use the term 
literal. And while I think the creationist who was defending the view probably understands what is meant by the word um, literal, he didn't really take the time out to correct his um, interlocutor there on this issue. And so that kind of launched us, uh, that along with a question that I received recently in a Facebook group, kind of launched us into this discussion on definitions. And so we spent the first week analyzing that debate, and then at the end of the debate we went ahead and um, did our best to define the term literal. What does it actually mean, and what do creationists mean when they use the term And how can we uh, have better conversations when that word is in play? I recommend it, of course, just using a different word. Um, But you can go back and listen to Lesson 40 if you want to get more on that. Then last week, we took a look at science. What, What on earth is science? That's what I titled the episode. What on earth is science? Because science is another one of those terms which is often misunderstood and confused. There are multiple kinds of science. There are a there are many philosophical biases that are imported into the definition of science when used by all parties. And if we don't get clear first on what those philosophical uh, biases and assumptions are, then we're not going to have a very productive conversation, right? Because we're going to be talking past each other. And one of the terms that science is often conflated with quite erroneously is the first term that we're going to look at today. And that is the term evolution. Evolution. Now, it's quite obvious that... um, we're not tackling, as part of this lesson, uh, all of the broad nuances that come along with a term such as evolution. I mean, how many books have been written about it um, from many different perspectives, and how many more could be written about it? Um, The answer is quite a few, quite a few. So we certainly can't peruse the depths of of all of that. So uh, neither... Neither could we peruse the depths of what is um, uh, what encompasses the word kind and the word species. But nevertheless, these three are, um, are related concepts that we'd like to go ahead and try to define for you here today to where at least we can approach these subjects in our conversations a little bit better. And... It's going to be very important that we're able to make distinctions between them. Um, Philosophy, at the heart of it, has to do with distinctions. It's being able to tell one thing apart from another. And words matter on this. Words matter because we use uh, words to to describe what we mean by our philosophical distinctions. And the English language, while very confusing in some ways, is also very rich in other ways because uh, there is usually a precise word, no matter how obscure, uh, no matter how 
misunderstood or, 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 or um, how little it is used, there are, there's usually a precise word, uh, exactly what you want to say, the idea that you want to get across, there's usually a word for that. And so uh, that is one thing that's very interesting about the English language. And so it's very helpful that we are able to make these distinctions uh, when using these terms. So let's uh, begin taking a look at the word evolution. And uh, we will see if there's anything about this that we can learn. Now, now first, and I didn't even write this down, but let me take time out real quick just to comment on this issue of using the term evolution when it is conflated with the term science. And I did speak on this a little bit last time, but I want to I elaborate on it um, this morning. When somebody makes a statement um to you in which they they are they're questioning your skepticality of evolution while you openly welcome scientific evidence from other areas for example i think one of the examples i used last time also was let's say that um, you have no problem with the fact that the uh, Apollo uh, 11 astronauts made it to the moon in 1969. No problem. All right. The, 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 com- the computations that were used, the, the science um, that was used by those scientists and engineers and astronauts ultimately who made that trip possible you have no problem with. But then somebody comes along and and and, and tries to tell you that great-grandpa was an amoeba and you're skeptical of that. And the person is confused. At least they appear to be confused because they say, now wait a minute now. You... You, you you trusted in the the science that um, it took to go to the moon. Why don't you trust in the science of evolution? Do you see that? Now, there are a couple things going on here. A couple things going on here. Uh, first of all, they are, again, failing to make the distinction that we did talk about last time about different kinds of science, historical science versus origin science versus observational science. There is a difference, and creationists did not make it up. Ernst Meyer, look him up, literally wrote the book on evolution called What Evolution Is. He dealt with this. He dealt with this. He claimed that evolution is a historical science. So this is not a creationist Invention, um, contrary to what uh, Bill Nye and many others attempt to say, all right? So there's that end of it. But then secondly, secondly, I want to say that this is a misuse of um, logic. It's actually bordering on the fallacy of equivocation. And what happens there is... 
one uh, one sense of using the term is swapped out in the middle of a conversation for another sense of using the same term. And so it does still apply to the uh, to the distinction that's that's being failed to make, but it's a logical view uh, between historical and observational science. Somebody says, well, you don't trust this science, but evolution is the same science, and you don't trust that. But you see, that's the very issue at hand. It's not the same science. It's a different kind of science. Now, albeit that historical science is a legitimate kind of science. It, 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 the tools are a little bit different. The methods are a little bit different. But it is a um, valid uh, way of doing science. The problem is that evolution is often touted as though it were some sort of fact. And often merely so because of its widespread acceptance but this fails to um, take into account that the most, uh, let me back up, the, the greatest discoveries in the history of scientific discovery have been those which go against the majority view. And so I can't help but wonder, have you ever thought about this? How much longer that evolution will be? I mean, it seems never-ending at this point. But something could be around the corner weeks or months, maybe even days from now, which completely turned the paradigm over on its head. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. And of course I know that if it's some kind of naturalistic paradigm that's thought of, that it's probably not going to favor Christianity very well. However, this is not necessarily the case. Let me explain what I mean. Obviously, I do not subscribe to the Big Bang. However, it is true that many scientists actually rejected the Big Bang whenever um, uh, it began to be postulated on the very basis that it would provide a mechanism by which Genesis 1-1 could be true. Because prior to that time, of course, much thought was uh, was given to the eternal universe idea. As a matter of fact, it's really the main, um, it was the main scientific view. And so it's important to realize that even though we don't care for the Big Bang, the model most widely accepted by mainstream scientists today actually has led many to conclude that Christianity is uh, true, or, or at least has started people along that path. So I, I, I don't think we should discount that even if it doesn't look exactly like the Bible, now don't get me wrong here, I, I, I very adamantly push that we need to uh, be biblically right about about our way of, of, of thinking about things, especially as it relates to, to our study of the natural world, of God's world. Um, I think we need to be right about that. However, it certainly seems possible, as in the case of the Big Bang, that perhaps something in the leading scientific paradigm could shift to lead most scientists 
to accept something that looks a lot closer to the biblical creation account than something they've held in the past. Again, I'm just being very vague, and I'm just speculating here, but it certainly seems possible. And that kind of moves people into this position of inconsistency, of believing um, uh, believing one thing when based on what the evidence shows, they really should believe another. And, and we see evidence of this all over Scripture. I mean, that Romans 1, 2 Peter 3, uh, it's shrouded in this stuff, man. It's, it's, this, it's this inconsistency, this incongruency that you have to live um, with if you if you live in God's world and yet don't acknowledge God as the creator. So that's a very important uh, distinction to be made, first of all. Okay, so evolution, um, there is often a misuse of the terms macro and micro evolution. And we've all heard this, macro and micro evolution. What do these things mean? Should creationists be using these terms? I want to argue... No. I want to argue, no. We should not use the terms macro and micro evolution. And I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. Um, First of all, believe it or not, this is a distinction in terms, again, that was actually put in place by evolutionists. This is not a creationist invention, the whole macro versus micro evolution thing. In fact, if you go to uh, websites like BioLogos, the leading Christian um, evolutionist uh, organization, uh, they will uh, use these terms all of the time. These are uh, evolutionary terms. These are evolutionary terms. And we have to be careful just dismissing this as saying, oh, well, it's just semantics. Uh, because this is the language they use, we need to get on their level, so to speak, and start speaking their language. Um, this is not true. Don't fall for that. We don't need to start speaking their language. We need to hold them accountable to a standard of language that makes sense of what is actually observed in the world. Now, if you're going to use macro and microevolution according to their definition... All right, I'm okay with that. But it's an extra step of clarification in the conversation, okay? You have to back up a minute and say, now, wait a minute now. I don't use macro and microevolution. I don't use those terms, and here is why. And you give them your reasons why. And if they accept your reasoning for that, uh, then you can go. Then you can go forward. As long as everybody understands what is what is meant by the terms. And here's what often uh, happens: they would like to see us use the term microevolution when we mean. Um, and there's a few words I could use here that work: speciation, um, adaptation. These are two uh, two words. Um, uh, interbarominic uh, diversification, if we want to get really, really technical, all right? Uh, so um, what, of course, we mean by this is, and I, I really am I'm, I'm careful, variation, there's another word. I'm careful even to use the word speciation because in a way it kind of plays into their language system, even though we all know what that means. But um, 
the reason they make this uh, this distinction between macro and micro evolution is because they uh, they later want to argue that once you get up to the family level, then what you actually see is macro evolution. In other words, they want um, they want to eliminate, I'm looking for the right words here, pardon my pause, but um, they, they want to eliminate the line or blur the line that separates these two things. And what they want us to say is that macroevolution is just microevolution, but in a different level of the um, taxonomy or, at, you know, later down the line as you... Um, as you move down the line, it moves from macro to microevolution, and it's not really clear where that happens, yada, yada, yada. So when you affirm uh, microevolution, you actually affirm macroevolution. And this is kind of the way that they want to argue for those who um, uh, have bought into this, uh, this way of speaking about things. But we need to be very, very careful. And uh, this is a matter of some conflict for me because I realize on one hand that um, evolution as a scientific discipline, as a, as a way of um, conducting helpful research um, when it comes to biology, right? Evolution is a framework, is a way of doing that, and it's a pretty successful way. Uh, you know, um, I hate to be so, uh, so ground level on this, but I think you can relate to it. I mean, if we, if I pull... Um, you know, uh, an assorted box of, of noodles, you know what I'm saying, out of the cabinet, and I wanted to construct a, a, a maybe an evolutionary tree of uh, of noodles, all right? Uh, there are multiple ways maybe that I could do it. I could classify them based on how many ridges they have. I could, I could put them uh, from the order of the least complex to the most complex. I could put them in the order of the smallest to the largest. Um, there are many ways maybe. I could, I could do it in shape. I could do it from the most basic shape to the most complex looking shape. There are multiple ways in which I could classify them. Of course, I could also classify them. Again, we're talking about an assorted box of noodles. I could also classify them by what kind, I'm throwing out a little bit of a, of a word there that we're going to talk about in a minute. I could also classify them but by what kind of noodle they appear to be. So there are multiple ways of, and this it's a very simple illustration. I understand that, but yet the illustration still holds. Because there are multiple ways of uh, classifying and categorizing species. Look at uh, uh, um, this is not reserved. I mean, within the evolutionary paradigm, over the years there have been different systems of um, of classification. So um, you know, don't be don't be led to think that the only way that one can look at these um, sorts of things is through the lens of um, Darwinian evolution in the taxonomic classification as it is today, um, also known as um, cladistics. This is not something that we're forced to subscribe to if we're going to explain what we see in the world. Now, the reason that I wanted to get off on that is because 
in one sense, I realized how productive um, of a framework that biological evolution uh, could be. On the other hand, I don't want us to forget the fact that we believe in a world where evolution, in the sense of the term that, that they mean, it did not happen. It did not happen. Um, and this is where it might get a little fringe, but in, in a strict way of looking at it, it does not happen. It does not happen. And again, I realize that many would think this is just semantics, but I think there is some value in making a distinction between what we see in speciation or variation or adaptation and there, between that and the word evolution. Because evolution kind of implies, doesn't it, this upward change. Almost implicitly we bring in this idea of an organism being uh, molded into or perfected into some kind of um, better version of that organism. And by the way, this is getting into, I mean, this is not new uh, as far as, I mean, science is concerned. This is getting into um, platonic objects. I mean, this is, there's a big philosophical backdrop actually behind all of this that many aren't even aware aware about. Um, I mean, we were talking about this kind of stuff years ago, all right? Um, um, Centuries and, and, and millennia ago. So it's nothing new, but we have to be careful not to buy into their definition when using these terms. And the fact is that there is just a huge differentiation to be made when we say that an organism has adapted to its environment or there has been variation within the kind of species that we, uh, or the the kind, I should say, that that we see. Uh, There is a difference between saying that and saying that this organism has evolved. Because what we understand is that even if an organism has a mutation uh, to occur that ends up being beneficial. Now, this is one of the big arguments on their side. They say, well, you know, if, if a mutation is beneficial, then you know, natural selection, you know, treated this organism favorably and it's going to move up. And so it, it's, it's becoming more, a, a more perfect version of whatever sort of thing that it is, whatever species, whatever, uh, you know, on down the line. And the fact is that genetic, beneficial genetic mutations um, say no such thing about an organism. And why is that? Well, it's for multiple reasons, but the one that I want to bring out to you here. Um, ultimately is that if you were to change the environment slightly, for instance, that the organism found itself in, the mutation might not even be beneficial. It might actually be harmful to the organism. We need to be careful. Um, there are some creationists who take the route of saying that there just are no beneficial mutations. Beneficial mutations don't exist. Um, well, that's, I think, disingenuous because I don't think it's true. I think you can have beneficial mutations take place within populations of organisms. Nevertheless, they're still mutations. They are not the product of something becoming a better version. Rather, the product 
in a um, in a strict sense of it becoming worse. They are a mutation, a distortion, if you will, of what was already there. Even if the mutation ends up being beneficial superficially, it still amounts to loss. Loss of information, not addition of information. So that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to use the term evolution. Because no matter how uh, grand of a scale you think the, quote, uh, evolution, unquote, happened on, you still run into the issue that you're not really meaning the same thing. It's not really micro to macro evolution because, again, there's not new information being added. Look up genetic duplication sometime. If you look that up, and I, I did look it up, by the way, found on Wikipedia, and I know Wikipedia is not a trustworthy source. I'm just using it to gain what the popular notion is here, okay? Um Listen, gene duplication, this is what Wikipedia says, and I quote, gene duplication is a major mechanism through which new genetic material is generated during molecular evolution. It can be defined as any duplication of a region of DNA that contains a gene. Did you hear that? Genetic duplications can arise as products of several types of errors in DNA, replication, and repair machinery as well as through fortuitous capture by selfish genetic elements. Okay, so look. A major mechanism through which new genetic material is generated during molecular evolution, it could be defined, now here's how it is defined, as any duplication of a region of DNA that contains a gene. Let me ask you a question. If I write the words, Hi, my name is Steve, on a piece of paper, and below that, I write the words, Hi, my name is Steve, on a piece of paper. Same punctuation, identical. I mean, absolutely identical. Let me ask you a question. Does that constitute new information can you learn anything new after the second line has been added? Of course not. It's not new information. It's just duplication of the same information. Now, yes. Now, now hang on here. Don't lose me. Natural selection can act on that now duplicated set of uh, information set, let's say, and perhaps a, a different outcome arises as a result of the uh, natural selection acting on that information set versus the first. There's nothing to say that both information sets, because they began identical, are destined to the same type of mutations or the same type of reaction. There's nothing that says that. So that constitutes different information that, again, constitutes genetic loss, but it is not the addition of new information to tell an organism how to 
act or react to the stimuli in its environment. That's why we don't say it's evolution. And this is the one of the major mechanisms. I just read that for you. This is one of the major mechanisms that they use to try to justify this, but it's just not true. I mean, it. yes, it happens, but it doesn't produce the effect that they want it to produce. That's the problem. That's the, I should say it doesn't produce the effect that they need it to produce. So the simplest definition of evolution that there is, now there's multiple definitions, multiple kinds of evolution. One um, quite popular creationist boils it down to six. I, I don't have any problem with his uh, six distinctions, um, but there are many more kinds of evolution, even than the ones that he mentioned there, although his six distinctions tend to tend to get it, um, generally speaking, but there's more to it than that. All right, now the simplest definition is just change over time. Now, change over time. Do organisms change over time? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Organisms change over time. Not a disputed fact in creationist circles at all. No problems with that. Organisms change over time. There is going to be some big differences in what that change looks like when we're um, talking to an evolutionist versus a creationist. But the fact of the matter is um, that that change uh, does occur. We totally agree on that definition. No problems there. Now, I, I want to go ahead and move along a little bit here because I've, I've labored there a good bit. Um, what about the claim that is often made that creationists are actually the uh, most radical evolutionists of all? And many of us have heard this. We've been accused of being hyper-evolutionists um, because we require... The kind of change, uh, supposedly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of parroting the claim here, that, um, that the animals, when they got off of Noah's Ark, had to have evolved so, so rapidly um, that the same kind of change that would take place over millions of years had to happen in just thousands of years. Doesn't that make us the worst kind of evolutionist? You know, we're not only, you know, in bed with the enemy, we're, you know, we're, we're taking over headquarters, baby. I mean, we're, I mean, we, I mean, the Darwinians I, I don't have nothing on the young earth creation. Is that right? And I'm kind of laughing here uh, because of how, uh, how interesting this accusation is. Silly on some counts. Um, partially correct, although um, not in a... Um, not in a very generous way to our view, um, uh, and I guess what I'm trying what I'm trying to say there is, uh, it, it's not an issue for our view at all because every day modern good science science is is confirming the view, um, but yet it's parroted as though it is just some kind of awful thing um, that we would expect this change to happen over just the course of, of thousands of years. Um, there's no problems with this at all. So let me explain a few things. There's a huge difference. Again, back to kind of what we were talking about before, between rapid uh, variation, rapid adaptation, whatever, and rapid evolution. There is a huge, huge difference. There are multiple kinds of speciation. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those in a minute. Um, there are uh, multiple factors into the environment. Um, for, for example, um, epigenetics. 
epigenetics um, helps contribute to reproductive isolation, which is variation, which is speciation. Um, I, I, I created a post on that a little while back on epigenetics, and I'll link you to that. Um, and let me just write that down here. Uh, that I'm going to be able to link you to that on the epigenetics post um, that I did. And uh, in that, we explore some of the idea that uh, turns out that some types of diversification can happen on a very, very, very rapid scale. In fact, you can have a huge difference from one organism to the offspring of its organism just based on the geographical location and what you fed the parents or what the grandparents ate. So there are a huge difference in the epigenome as well. Um, and so there, there are just, uh, and you get into ring species and allopatric speciation. There, there are multiple um, ways of accomplishing reproductive isolation, which by any definition is, is usually what is meant by speciation. Um, there are many ways of this phenomenon eventually taking place in a population of of organisms that can happen quite rapidly. And new research is coming out all the time that is confirming how rapid this speciation and variation is happening. Uh, we've mentioned that a few episodes uh, ago. I forget which lesson it was. Um, but I plan on doing a whole lesson on uh, a, a, this, new, uh, this new research that's happening in the Galapagos. Um, and just to kind of give you a little teaser, I mean, it appears that Darwin's finches, <laughs> the very finches of the Galapagos, which kind of began this whole hoopla um, from a scientific perspective, um, could be the very thing which help us to disprove the theory or, or, which, or which give us the best ground, I guess we should say, that to, to stand on in modern terms for a creationist view of speciation and variation. And uh, so that's a little teaser, and we'll get more into that sometime. But but just know that these are two different things: speciation happening on a rapid scale versus evolution, in the sense that they mean the term happening on a rapid scale, are actually two very, very different things for multiple reasons. Now I want to read a little bit um, from um, Dr. Jonathan uh, Sarfati's book, Refuting Compromise. And again, he's uh, uses a little bit different language than I do approaching this issue, but you know, I trust you'll uh, you'll you'll allow us to read this here. And um, unfortunately, many old Earth creationists tend to uh, parrot these arguments about the hyperevolution. I mean, this, uh, Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, was one of the first to really start making this accusatory claim against creationists, and they just bring it out, bring it out, bring it out. It comes up over and over again, and so it needs to be addressed. Um, I'm quoting now from uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. He says this, Ross repeats the fallacious argument that because creationists advocate the rapid speciation of life forms released from the ark, creationists are ironically embracing evolutionism more intensely than are the evolutionists themselves. In actuality, speciation in itself is not the origin of a totally new life form at all. The new species is merely a minor variant, generally a subset of the parent species. There is no evolution because there is no new information. More informed evolutionists themselves acknowledge that the origin of a new species is simply an ecological adaptation of a life form that exhibits the same or lower grade of complexity, i.e. information content, as the parent species. That's directly from um, 
molecular molecular chemist, excuse me, Dr. Uh, Jonathan uh, Sarfati. So, uh, you know, even evolutionists themselves realize that we're not talking about evolution the same way when we talk about evolution and or when we talk about speciation and adaptation. Now, they're going to keep using the term, but again, I think we should stop because of reasons like this. It's two uh, different things. It's not advocating for some quicker version of molecules demand evolution. Uh, it's a completely different way of looking at things. So for more on this particular topic, um, one of the angles that we looked at this from was in lesson number 16. And we titled that lesson, Is Evolution Just a Theory? Is Evolution Just a Theory? And so in that uh, lesson, we took a specific look actually at a meme that circulated around the internet for a while there, probably still going around. And it deals with uh, the definition of law versus theory. And we spent some time defining evolution under those terms as well. So I highly um, encourage you to check that lesson out for a little bit more on the uh, evolution end. Uh, one thing before I move on to the term kind. want to move on to the term kind and then the word species uh, finally to close up today. But um, before we move on to that, I want to um, comment on something called abiogenesis. And if you've been in the origins debate at all, you know that the law of biogenesis was um, essentially put in place by um, um, Louis Pasteur. Uh, in this pasteurization process, he realized uh, that spontaneous generation uh, was not true um, and that uh, life, it appears, um, cannot come from non-life. And this is consistent with our experience. And so in recent years, a, um, a distinction uh, has been uh, made by many Darwinists in which they want to separate abiogenesis, which would be life coming from non-life. We could say first life coming from non-life. They want to separate abiogenesis completely from conversations about Darwinian evolution. And now this is a very recent development, a very recent development. And honestly, I mean, if I'm just speculating on this, I think it's because I think they expected to have an answer to this question a lot sooner. And they still don't have an answer to the question. And so a lot of times this is instead referred to neo-Darwinianism, whereby the mechanism um, underlying and controlling Darwinian evolution, despite the fact that it is uh, unguided, um, it somehow uh, is responsible for the type of um, creation of life and creation of new material that it takes to to drive species forward and indeed uh, that originally created the first life here on earth. Now, I recommend that um, we not exclude this from the conversation. I, I, again, if you want to go by their definitions, if you want to separate it out, whatever, that's fine. However, let me just say that if... If, if you're trying to explain something that um, has no way of getting started, then you've got some pretty big problems. Um, I think that evolution is very philosophically driven. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of borrowing this language a little bit from, from Greg Kokel, who's made this, uh, this kind of statement before. And I've, I've got a quote somewhere on it, but I didn't think to write it down. Uh, essentially, uh, he says that uh, evolution is more a philosophy 
than it is actual science on his view, uh, simply because nobody has any idea how it got started. They say it must have happened because poof, here we are. But the very thing that that is required in order for evolution to happen, namely the beginning of life without any life giver, we have no way of proving that. And nobody doesn't even have the slightest idea how it could actually happen. So um, when somebody says, no, let's leave abiogenesis out of the conversation, I say, no, we need to put it into the conversation because that's a part of evolutionary theory. It is absolutely a part of evolutionary theory. By the way, in the textbooks, many of them still treat it that way. Most of them, I would say, still treat abiogenesis as a part of what is meant by evolution theory or Darwinian evolution theory. So don't let go of that point because that's very important because that's their miracle. Did you get that? Now they say, look, you got a God of the gaps. You're putting God in the gaps of our scientific knowledge. Well, you're putting chance and science in the gaps of our scientific knowledge. It's circular reasoning. You say it must have happened because we're here. Well, that is circular reasoning. That has nothing to do with scientific discovery or observation of, 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 of understanding how this could have possibly happened. It just doesn't follow. So uh, be careful of that. Why talk about something the way something is if there's no explanation for why the way something is the way that it is? That doesn't make any sense to me. All right, let's move on real quick to the word kind, to the word kind. Um, and uh, again, kind of species, we can kind of move uh, a little a little bit quicker through these because um, they're really not complex definitions at all. They're just sometimes misunderstood and or misused. The word kind uh, is actually derived uh, from the Hebrew word men, um, insofar as we understand it here. All right, it's the Hebrew word men, and so that's what we see in, uh, of course, the Hebrew Bible uh, or the Old Testament, as many Christians know it. So um, we've already, I already mentioned a term a little bit earlier that was a little confusing maybe, um, called intrabaraminic, or I should say interbaraminic um, uh, um diversification. And that's essentially, uh, the word baramin in there is from the words um, created and kind. We're going to talk about that in just a just a moment. Um, let me read to you Genesis um, 1.24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. So generally, then, um, a kind is, um, you know, whatever can bring forth, all right? If something can bring forth um, with another uh, type of organism, then it seems, biblically speaking, that it falls to within the same kind. Um, there seems to be no prohibition here uh, from a uh, scriptural standpoint. Um, however, reproductive isolation is something we need to think about. Um, it is true that a species could possibly become separated out or a kind could become uh, separated out that once could reproduce one with another and now they can't uh, because of reproductive isolation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are now a different kind. Um, rabbits are an example of that. There, there is a, uh, there are multiple um, kinds of rabbits on different parts of the globe who um, could not 
uh, reproduce with each other right now uh, due to reproductive isolation. However, they're still rabbits. This is obvious. A five-year-old could tell you they are still rabbits. Uh, according to Dr. Kurt Weiss, uh, quote, traditionally, the phrase is thought to mean that God created organisms to reproduce after their kind, that is, to mate only with others of their own kind. This has been commonly understood to mean that God created each biblical kind with built-in genetic barriers that prevented them from being able to reproduce with any organism outside that kind. Such barriers may or may not exist, as Scripture does not demand their existence, but if they do exist, genetic relatedness obviously spread through created kinds as time went on. It would follow, then, that organisms that can successfully interbreed should be of the same created kind, and even if uncrossable genetic barriers do not exist, even if kinds are less formally defined, it is still likely that successful crosses indicate which organisms are of the same kind. Now, this term um, goes a little bit broader uh, than speciation uh, because Wise again says that animals classified in different species are known to interbreed successfully as well. Uh, dogs, for example, can interbreed successfully with wolves. And this means that the biblical kind is a broader term than the species of modern classification. And so this is this is true. And so um, he continues here that um, since kind is a, a term with uh, too many non-technical meanings, Frank Marsh in 1941 recognized the need for a special term for a biblical kind. He proposed the term basic type or baramin, derived from the Hebrew. Baramin means roughly created kind, close quote. So um, there you see... Uh, that when we're defining a kind, uh, it, it's you know it's pretty simple. We don't need to belabor this point really. Uh, it's just it's going to be broader than uh, than a species. It, when we say kind, we don't mean species. And a lot of times, um, uh, evolutionists will somehow bash the fact that we don't have this all ironed out yet. Um, but they don't have it all ironed out yet. There are still um, species supposedly and families and orders that. That they don't have the classification quite clear on on different organisms. So um, we are uh, actively doing research. Uh, Dr. Wise that we just mentioned there and Dr. Wood and uh, many others are, are actively doing research, um, working to classify organisms uh, according to uh, baromenology. And that has to deal with uh, baromens and mono monobaromens and and apobaromens. These are different terms that maybe we'll talk about at a later date. But um, essentially, classifying the created kinds due to different um, features that they have. And um, there's a lot of work being done on the creationist front right now for that kind of thing. So uh, it's a blossoming field of study. Uh, so, uh, but for now, I think it's safe to define uh, kind uh, as wise um, has here, with you know just understanding that if any um, uh, set of organisms can successfully hybridize, they are probably considered the the same kind. All right, now let's not miss out on the practicality of all this. While kind uh, may be hard to define scholastically. It seems intuitively obvious uh, in n nearly all cases. 
nearly all cases. As a matter of fact, most children would be able to identify the basic kinds of animals. Pretty simple stuff. You can tell the difference, as one creationist makes the, <laughs> the illustration, between a dog, a wolf, a coyote, and a banana. These are different kinds of things. These are different kinds of things. Admittedly, there are harder to understand um, classifications. I'm not saying they're all that easy, all right? But almost all cases, it's intuitively obvious that an owl is an owl, but it is a bird. Uh, there is a difference between your cat and the hoot owl at night. And by the way, there's a difference between those two things and you. Hopefully you can, you can see that. And then lastly, just want to close out on the term species. Uh, again, species is part of the uh, Linnaean classification system. Um, Carolus Linnaeus, by the way, he was a biblical creationist. And I think would be uh, distraught uh, if he were alive today at, at the way that his classification is used as evidence for such an unbiblical idea as Darwinian Evolution, But, of course, species is the bottom of the chain for uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Hopefully you remember that from science class. Um, Wise uh, defines species for us. He's a, you know, a good scientist. He's got a good definition here. I like it. No problem using it. I saw it while I was looking up some of the other research I did on the word kind. So I figured I would grab that and use it. Naturally interbreeding populations of organisms that under natural conditions do not interbreed with other populations. That's a pretty good uh, definition. Naturally interbreeding populations, but that's an important distinction. It's not what can hybridize, right? It's naturally interbreeding populations that under natural conditions do not interbreed with other populations. That could be defined as a species, generally speaking. Um, the problem here is that there's really no clear boundaries. Again, a lot of times... Um, going back to our first area of, of, of um, study this morning, um, there's confusion. Evolutionists want to say that microevolution is similar to speciation, but once we get up to around the family level, what we are seeing is macroevolution, supposedly. But again, th this is why we don't use their, their terms, because they've... They've kind of set up the whole circus. Uh, they're using their own classification system and arbitrarily defining terms and defining things the way they want to. But we could do the same thing, now, and we do that. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that let's not confuse the definitions. When we use the word kind, we're probably talking something more on the order of the family level. And yet, it can be defined in evolutionary terms as adaptation or variation or speciation. There is lots of variation within organisms, but we never see one kind of animal turning into another kind. It just doesn't happen. We do see change past the Linnaean species level, which is, again, why I don't even like to use the term speciation, because I, I mean, because you create a new species. That's not a problem. When reproductive isolation happens, you create a new species. But it's the same bearman. It's the same 
kind. So let's not forget that. Let's be sure to clarify these terms in our conversations and get clear. That's all we're asking is, is, is for everybody to get clear from the outset on what is meant by these otherwise confusing terms. And don't allow yourself to become confused by them. If I had one admonition for you, it would be that. These things are pretty easy to understand. Get a few good books on the subject and you'll be on your way to really getting a good grasp on this. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you for your goodness today. We want to say thank you for giving us your word, giving us your world, giving us your, your son, your creation to study and to magnify it. Father, thank you for giving me the passion to do this and the, the ability to be able to share with others uh, what, I've, what I've learned, the little that I've learned. And uh, Thank you for the ability and the capacity to be able to learn even more. Now, Father, I pray you'd be with us uh, this next week. Be with all of my listeners. Uh, I'm sure they have many personal needs, many probably going through tragedy in their life. Maybe some are on the mountain right now, having the best time of their life. Father, I pray wherever their situations are that you would guide them, lead them, lead me, guide me and my family and um, in all the different areas of life that we're involved in. I pray now, Father, that uh, you would receive the glory and honor for everything that we do and everything that we accomplish in this ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Hey, would you do me a favor and just go to iTunes or Google Play, wherever you are, leave this podcast a review. Um, leave us a review. We are on Google Play now, on the Google Play Store. Um, and so if you have an Android phone, maybe you've been listening on the website. If you have an Android phone now, you can go there and download the Creation Academy from the Play Store. And we highly suggest that you do that. Leave us a review so that more people can see the podcast. That helps. I'm not just... Uh, wanting personal accolades. That's not it at all. Um, when you put reviews out there, it helps other people to see it. They actually move your, it's part of the algorithm. They actually move your uh, podcast up in the search results in those directories. And so that would be a very, very helpful thing for you to do for us in our ministry. Uh, until then, we will uh, see you next week. And uh, hey, don't forget to go to jointca.co, jointca.co to sign up for the Creation Academy today. Remember, it is launching uh, early next year, and we're excited about it. Uh, great things are happening, working on it every day, and uh, looking to make an awesome product for you guys. All right, thanks so much. God bless. Have a good one. Bye-bye.